coming in it, never fear. Your pastor, teacher will be back next week. Um, and I'm certain more rested and enthusiastic than ever, but it is a great privilege of mine to be able to share God's word with you. I think everybody kind of has a sermon inside them. Um, I think this one has, the Lord has been working inside me for a long time. Um, so it is, uh, it is my pleasure to, uh, and privilege to be here this morning. Our text is in 2 Corinthians, and about a year ago, our community group started studying in 1 Corinthians. And I, I, I really grew to love um, this letter, Paul's relationship with the church. It really was very unique from the other uh, churches. Um, and it, it was uh, unique in one sense because it, it had a, a certain degree of uh, conflict, right? This letter um, and this passage that we're studying this morning is among my favorite in the Bible. And in fact, a portion of it, my wife and I both agreed, it's, it's uh, one of the verses that has really touched our lives So one of the unique things about this letter is that Paul begins it quite differently from most of his other letters to the churches. Most of his other letters to the churches begin with uh, thanksgiving for the church, a celebration of the church. And this letter, uncharacteristically, begins with this theme of mercy and comfort. And it's really suggestive of the difficulty that has been there in their relationship. There's two other letters that Paul alludes to. We don't have them. Uh, they're uninspired, you could say. They are considered the severe letters. And these were letters that Paul really confronted the church about their sin. It included issues of of interlopers within the church that were challenging Paul on his apostolic authority within the church, and that continued even throughout this letter. So, in some sense, Paul is beginning this letter uh, with a tone of reconciliation, a tone of teaching the church why God uses affliction and how God, in the end, comforts us so if we begin with verse 3, Paul tells us that his God is the Father of mercies. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Well, if we're going to define a few terms, mercy is to look on another's plight and feel compassion, right? To feel pity, to have sympathy, God is the father of mercy. So what that means is, it is not just that God acts mercifully, right? It means that God, by his very nature, is a merciful God. Mercy comes before comfort. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Put another way, we have no ability to comfort someone we have no mercy for. Isn't that right? Well, why do we need mercy? Why does he start with mercy? Why is it important that the God 
that God is the Father of mercies. And in a phrase, it's the fall. If you're part of a community group and you've had the pleasure to start studying in Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, he does a wonderful job in the very beginning of the book that I wanted to share with you where he draws out a beautiful picture of the contrast before and after the fall. And he says, before the fall, the environment was lush and rich with a menagerie of animals that inhabited the air, land, and sea. Every physical and spiritual need was fully met. There were no unfed stomachs or diseases to be feared. The gardens were free of weeds and thorns. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect union with each other. There was no unhealthy competition, no power struggle, no vengeance or recrimination. There were no secret plots or harsh words, no fear, guilt, shame, or rebellion against authority. There was, un there was understanding, communication, and love. There was no temptation to sin. And then, in an instant... It changed. Fear, guilt, and shame became standard human experiences. People who once lived in perfect harmony now accused, deceived, and fought for control. Weeds and disease became daily concerns. People began to desire what was evil and to do what was wrong. Rather than submit to God's authority, they lived as their own gods. The world that once sang the song of perfection now groaned under the weight of the fall. Sin altered every thought, desire, word, and deed. It created a world of double-mindedness and mixed motives, self-worship and self-absorption. People desired to serve. People desired to be served, but they hated serving. They craved control and nurtured delusions of self-sufficiency. They forgot their creator, but worshiped his creation. Rather than loving people and using things to express, rather than loving people, and using things to express it. People loved things and used people to get them. Humanity's second generation even committed murder. They began to lie, cheat, hide, and deny. People suffered at the hands of others. From momentary thoughtlessness to unspeakable acts of physical and sexual abuse. For the first time, people wept from grief within and suffering without. We need mercy, folks, because we are fallen creatures living in a fallen world. And in Genesis, the Lord goes on to explain the results of that rebellion. Genesis 3.17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which, you, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God created us, he created a paradise. He placed us in that paradise. He loved us. He walked with us. He communed with us. And we rejected him. We rejected his authority. We 
rejected his, his will and his perfect desire for our life. You have to ask the question, why did God not abandon us? Why did God not, just not say, I'm done? And, and this is Paul's, at the heart of Paul's point, God is the father of mercies. Psalm 103.13 says, as the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David and, Mo, uh, David and Moses knew well the mercy of God. Well, Paul takes us farther. He tells us the father of mercies allows affliction. And there's perhaps a little bit of a conflict between those two realities. Verse 4 says, he comforts us in all our afflictions. Afflictions appears 45 times, a few more times than, than I'm comfortable with. But it literally means a, a, a pressure, a pressing in upon us. Anguish, burdened, persecution, tribulation, trouble. And it really brings up the age-old question. And philosophers, uh, well, today I think many would call it the problem with pain, right? How can a loving, omniscient, omnipotent God allow pain and suffering? Well, there's many reasons, good reasons, why God allows it. And God allows it not just for those who don't know and acknowledge him, but he allows it for his people. First, God allows bad things to happen to his people to test the validity of their faith. Now, it's not for God. He knows every man's heart. It's for our sake. Job was a man that was tested, perhaps beyond any other. And in the end, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job experienced affliction that in the end produced an assurance and a confidence and a hope that was unshakable. Number two, God allows bad things to happen to his people to wean us from the world. God strips away the resources that we lean on in this world, those things that produce a sense of self-sufficiency and teach us to rely on him. God allows bad things to happen to his people to call them to their heavenly hope. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says to the church, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's an interesting dynamic. The greater the burden, the sweeter the hope of heaven grows. Number four, 
God allows bad things to happen to his people to reveal to them what they really love. How do we respond to losing things in this world? Do we respond with anger? Do we respond with despair? Or do we trust in God, the God who will do what is right? We know the verse, Romans 8.28, right? Anybody quote it to me? I won't put you on the spot. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is a truth that we read and God calls us to live that truth. Peter encouraged the suffering church by saying, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear, nor be troubled. Five, God allows bad things to happen to his people to teach them obedience. The sting of affliction reminds us sin has its consequences, doesn't it? Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And the writer of Hebrews reminds believers how God uses trials. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Six, God allows bad things to happen to his people so he can reveal his compassion to them. It provides him an opportunity to display his loving kindness to us. David declared in Psalm 63.3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Truth is, believers never know God more intimately than when he comforts us in the midst of suffering. Number seven, God allows bad things to happen to his people to strengthen them for greater usefulness. James tells us, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why should we consider it all joy? Why should we consider trials a joy? He goes on, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Finally, number eight, God allows bad things to happen to his people to enable them for greater usefulness. Remember that scene with Simon Peter and it's before he denies Christ and that, that, that night and Jesus pulls him aside and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God intends difficulty to produce greater usefulness and that we can bless our brothers and sisters. And this really gets to the heart of Paul's emphasis in our text this morning, that God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort others. Know this, if you are afflicted, you are being equipped. That's the bottom line. 
Well, verse 4 goes on to tell us, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So let's look at the purposes of God's comfort. Leading up to this letter, Paul had confronted the church. Two other letters, as I mentioned, alluded to in Paul's writings, rebuked them for their sin, and now having confronted them, he seeks to comfort and restore them with the comfort with which he has been comforted by God. Comfort, and I love this word, parakaleo. Does that sound pretty good, Jeff? <laughs> means solace, comfort, consolation, support, exhortation. It appears 138 times in the New Testament alone. And in our passage, the idea of comfort means to strengthen much, to encourage, to come alongside, to stand beside, and encourage one another in the midst of our suffering. It can mean simply relief from suffering, ease from pain. And I would say that's, that, that's probably the primary way that our culture would look at comfort. And I have to admit, as I started uh, first reading the, the passage, one of the images that came into my mind was that commercial that happened way pre-Starbucks, you know, where somebody has the big tin of coffee, putting it under the opener, and they push the handle down, and you hear that <laughs> and you can just smell the coffee grounds, and this uh, sweater-clad hands grasp this mug filled with this steaming liquid, and, and the, the gal or the guy sinks back into an overstuffed chair. Comfort. <laughs> These are comforts that, that last for a moment and they don't satisfy. In the time of Wycliffe, and the first English translation, the word was closely related to the word, Latin word fortis, which means brave, strong, courageous. This comfort that Paul has in mind has little to do with feeling contentment or a tranquilizing dose of grace or an ease of pain. Rather, it is a stiffening agent that fortifies in heart, mind, and soul. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits. It girds us to face the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. Paul was no stranger to comfort. And he was no stranger to affliction. Much later in this letter to the Corinthians, he says in chapter 11, not in a boasting way, but he wants them to understand what his experience has been. Many are challenging Paul on his apostolic authority simply because he's a man who suffers. It really goes quite contrary to the Roman and the Greek mindset that God favors and strengthens the one he, he, he loves or the one he cares for. That should be a great conqueror. That should be one that doesn't suffer. 
But Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the church, all the churches. But throughout all of Paul's experiences, he, com- he, he experienced the comfort of God. Looking back at, at verse 4, what Paul is telling us is that if God comforts us in all of our suffering, then those who experience the most suffering will receive the most comfort. Does that make sense? And those who receive the most comfort are thereby most richly equipped to comfort others. And we've experienced this, haven't we? The one who's experienced the deepest sorrow and affliction is often the greatest encourager. I know there's people in this room that have experienced enormous affliction. There's people that are in the midst of enormous affliction. The one that comes alongside, the one that says, lean on me until you are able. The one that says and encourages trusting God. He is faithful. He will not fail. That's oftentimes the one who has experienced the greatest affliction. Paul uses this word, affliction, comprehensively uh, in many different situations from external distress. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Inner turmoil. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul's response to affliction tells us several things. One, affliction is not alien to faithful commitment in Christ. Matthew Henry, the great 18th century commentator and and, uh, uh, pastor said, extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. True comfort only comes from God, and it always matches our suffering. Number three, affliction serves to deepen our faith in God's power, not weaken it. And four, God comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others. You see, God's comfort is never intended to end with us. It is always intended to overflow to others. Believers, in a way, we are in partnership with each other. And we must never view our suffering in isolation. 
Verse 5, Paul takes this deeper. And he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And we have to ask, what does it mean to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings? I understand my own sufferings. What does it mean today to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings? The solidarity between Christ and his followers applies to his suffering as well as his gifts. Paul said, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, by experiencing the suffering of the cross and all its shame, hostility, and persecution as a continuation of Jesus' suffering on the earth, we extend Christ's ministry through our own bodies. And we confront the same evil today as Jesus faced then. So why would we expect it to be any different? Therefore, our ministry of hope in Christ and gospel reconciliation come through the path of the sufferings of Christ. Hear the, Hebrew of, hear the writer of Hebrews say, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Paul made this clear to Timothy in his second letter saying, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, right on time, Paul continues and he introduces enduring the sufferings of Christ. Verse 6 says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. If sharing in the comfort of God comes through sharing in the sufferings of Christ, verse 6 tells us we experience the comfort of God when we patiently endure the same sufferings of others. This endurance is not some human power within ourselves that we work up to uh, as we would for a marathon, that our own ability to sustain it. The Hebrew equivalent of this word is expectant waiting or intense desire. And we can see it in Psalm 39.7 where David says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Or Psalm 71.5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust. O Lord, from my youth. This understanding of endurance is something that comes from God and is focused on God. Paul says in Romans, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God.
Well, as we noted, Paul's letter of encouragement to the church is coming on the heels of letters of great difficulty and, and uh, um, stress in the relationship between himself and the church. But it's amazing that in verse 7, Paul makes a definitive statement of confidence. He says, our hope for you is unshaken. This is a church challenging whether he's an apostle. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul does not lose confidence in the church and his hope is unshaken. They will know the comfort of God even as they share his sufferings. He knows this will happen. And he knows what God will do through it. He says really the same thing to the Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. To the Philippians, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had supreme confidence in this church because he had supreme confidence in the God of the church. Well, now Paul is going to tell us a tale. A tale of suffering, comfort, and victory. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What's interesting in, in these last few verses, Paul takes us from the theological hypothesis, right? And he takes us to a real-life experience. And he teaches us through it some critical truths. One, it is important that we share our experience of suffering and comfort with one another. Two, through our experiences, we encourage one another and we comfort one another. Three, and hear me carefully, God does allow us to experience suffering and affliction beyond our strength. Have you ever heard that aphorism, 
God will never let you go through anything that you cannot handle. It's not true. In fact, God's purpose is to put us in afflictions that are beyond our capacity to handle, to strip us of our self-reliance, to grow in our hope and our reliance on our God. And four, through our sufferings, God replaces our self-reliance with an unshakable dependence and hope, not in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. I'm grateful for Paul's personal story. I don't know how many times I've read it. Dozens, hundreds maybe. And I'm encouraged every time. At the risk of embarrassing my daughter, I did want to share a personal experience. Many of you know uh, much about our family's story. But I did want to share with you one night, a number of years back, Maddie had been experiencing severe abdominal pains. Initially, it, it went undiagnosed. It was very frustrating. Eventually, it got to the point her, her pain was excruciating. And we found ourselves at Stanford. And um, remembering the night, I remember standing in the room off to the side. Typical scene, doctors, nurses scurrying around the bed. There were tubes, there were, there were uh, pumps, there were bells, there were whistles. It was very surreal. And over my shoulder, I remember hearing from the intercom out in the hall, one of those calls that you see in the doctor shows, you know, critical care team to some floor, room, whatever. I almost expected doctors in our room to, you know, exit en masse and meet the need. And instead, suddenly, the room was filled with doctors and nurses and and uh, caregivers coming in and around me and jostling me to the side and this and that. And, and they were over her and working and, and it was this ballet of, of activity. Everybody seemed to know what they were doing, but there were so many of them. How could they possibly? And then in, in, in the white noise of everything, I, 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 I thought I heard the words, we're losing her. And I remember I, I was standing there, had my hands crossed, hand on my chin. There really wasn't fear. There wasn't uh, a great deal of uh, anxiety. There was sorrow. I remember thinking, did I tell her I love her this morning? Well, they got it under control. They stabilized her. Some of the doctors left. Things slowed down a little bit. It sounded like they had a strategy to move forward. And I was still standing in the same place. I don't know how long it was. It could have been five, ten minutes. I really don't know. And, but at some point I realized there's a guy standing next to me. And, and I kind of look over and see the collar. And it's a hospital chaplain. And, and he's standing there. And and after, I was wondering, what, what, do you, what do you say to people at that moment? And um, I think he was asking the same thing. 
And a minute went by and he leaned over to me and he said, you seem remarkably calm. And I, without even thinking about it, I, I just turned to him and I said, we're trusting in Jesus. So I, I don't think I could put words to it at that point. But as I look back on that night, I experienced the comfort of God. I knew the comfort of God. And I don't know where all you are. I know many of you. But I can tell you my desire for you, my prayer for you, is that you would know the comfort of God. But the comfort of God only comes through the mercy of God and the mercy of God through his son, Jesus Christ. There's going to be a day for all of us. It might be on a roadside accident. It might be in the back of an ambulance. It might be in a medevac. It might be in a hospital room, operating table. It might be in a care center. Or you've experienced uh, an unusual level of health and you're entering your 80s and 90s but there's a crack in the veneer that says, maybe I'm not so self-reliant as I thought. There's not so many people around. What's going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to tell us that the wages of sin is death. But the Bible also tells us that God in his mercy sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That means he paid our debt. I would love to tell you about the comfort of God after the service. If you, if you want to seek me out, I'd love to talk to you about the mercy and the comfort of God. But I think you can just look around the room and you'll find smiling faces that know the comfort of God and would love to also tell you of the comfort of God. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercies. Father, thank you for affliction in our life that you have designed through your loving kindness, Father God. Thank you for the comfort by which you comfort us. And Father, thank you for the eternal comfort that we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.